Many are first attracted to Christianity because of its simple message. Later, when one reads the whole Bible, that simple message becomes lost in the 66 books with its diverse authors, times, places and subject matters. It doesn't help when scholars seem motivated to highlight the diversities at the expense of what holds the Bible together. Does anything hold the Bible together? Today's book confidently answers yes. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. In the last episode, I reviewed Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, Growing in Christ-likeness by Chris Wright, a free book for September from Faithlife. Faithlife is the maker of Logos, a Bible software that has its own free book of the month program. The books in Logos are far more theological and academic, which can be tough for me to read, much less review. However, when I see a Logos book that is within reach of a general Christian reader, I try to get the review out early, like today, so that you can hear the review while it's still September. Because the book uh, is not free while stocks last, it's free while it's still September. But if you are listening to this after September, you can still continue to hear this review and decide whether this book is worth $23.99 in Logos or $8.99 in Amazon Kindle. Prices may change after the recording. And to make sure you don't miss out on any great deals, please subscribe to Reading and Readers. The Logos free book for September is Recovering the Unity of the Bible, One Continuous Story, Plan and Purpose by Walter C. Kaiser Jr. 256 pages, published in 2009 by Zondervan Academic. Imagine, a bright-eyed Christian leaves everything behind to enter seminary. He sees himself getting trained in order to enter full-time ministry wherever God calls him. To be a shepherd to the flock, to preach to the nations, to burn mightily for a great God. After some time in seminary, he quits, leaves the faith and is never seen again. Or if he stays, his awe and wonder is now replaced with cynical skepticism. For he is now awakened to the overwhelming evidence that the Bible is not the beautiful orchestral symphony, he thought. Rather, it is a discordant noise where God suffers from multiple personality disorder. The real writers are nameless editors writing hundreds of years after the events. And the core message of the Bible? There is no core message of the Bible. There are many messages, each jostling to capture your attention and your doctrinal leanings. In some dictionaries, seminary is defined as the place where faith goes to die. If only someone told that bright-eyed Christian that the beautiful orchestral symphony he heard and thought he knew was real, that the diversity of scripture does not sink the message but buoys it up, as Kaiser argues. Accounting for all of this unity in the midst of obvious diversity spread over these centuries, with some 66 contributions of some 40 different writers in three languages on three continents is mind-boggling. There can be no real answer unless we also receive the claim of the writers that there was a supernatural aspect and a guiding mind at work in their writings as well. If God was behind the production of all these contributions, then the unity is the result of a driving plan and the harmony reflects what He has willed and purposed. End quote. 
Walter C. Kaiser Jr. is the Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Old Testament and President Emeritus of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary at South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Let me name some of his books which are relevant to today's review. Kaiser wrote Mission in the Old Testament, An Introduction to Biblical Hermeneutics with Moises Silva, Preaching and Teaching from the Old Testament, The Promised Plan of God, Hard Sayings of the Old Testament, and a history of Israel. I list these books because, number one, some listeners may not know that Kaiser is a boss in Old Testament scholarship. Well, now you know. As you heard, uh, number two, as you heard, Kaiser has written books on mission, hermeneutics, promised plan of God, as well as on preaching and teaching. In today's book review, we will see chapters titled The Unity of the Mission in the Old Testament, The Unity of the Bible and Hermeneutics, the unity of the Bible and the promised plan of God. The unity of the Bible and expository preaching and teaching. It does look like today's book is an abridged collection of Kaiser's other writings centered on the theme of unity. Number three, in one of his books, uh, Hard Sayings of the Old Testament, Kaiser addressed head-on difficult verses and apparent contradictions. Uh, re reading these contradictions is like getting IKEA parts and figuring out how each part connects. You could have sworn it was impossible until you read the manual, and then it all fits. Dealing with the unity question, Kaiser shows us how many parts of the Bible fit together. Now, to be transparent, before reading uh, Recovering the Unity of the Bible, uh, the only Kaiser book I read was A History of Israel, the 1998 edition. I loved it. Hence my enthusiasm for today's book when it was offered for free. Similarly, if you like a chapter here and there from today's uh, book, you can thank me later for your future shelf full of Kaiser books. Now let's get to the book. There are 16 chapters plus preface and epilogue. The first three chapters set up the groundwork. What is unity? What is diversity? How do we harmonize the diversities? Now, let's play Family Feud on the first two chapters and see how many answers you can get right. Welcome to Family Feud, the reading and reader's version. We asked an undisclosed number of Old Testament scholars named Walter the following question. What are the different types of unity in the Bible? And, uh, oh, you, you, don't, um, you don't know what I mean by unity? Well, for, for example, on one hand, you have Genesis, on the other, you have Exodus. In what way are, are these two books the same? Well, you could say, well, the author is the same. The time it was written, I mean, kind of, because it's the Pentateuch, so you would say it was written around the same time. The place it writes about, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel later on. Okay, so you do see some similarities between Genesis and Exodus, these two books. Now, think about what is the same between Genesis and, let's say, Revelation. Now, now think about what is the common thread for all 66 books in the Bible. Okay, so we're not comparing two. We're saying that all 66 books have something in common. There is a unity that binds all 66 books together. So coming back to the question, what are the different types of unity that we can see in the Bible? Kaiser lists and explains the following six uh, types of unity. Uh, number one, structural number two, historic, number three, prophetic, number four, doctrinal, number five, spiritual, and number six, charismatic. 
charismatic to mean that there is one preaching message. And I think that for most of us, we would suspect there would be a doctrinal or there would be a singular preaching message in the whole Bible. So uh, let's move on to the next question, which I think you would do better. All right, let's, let's try this uh, next question. Again, we asked the same undisclosed number of Old Testament scholars named Walter this question. What are the different types of diversities in the Bible? I think it's easier to think of ways that the books of the Bible are different than similar. And the answer comes up on the board. Uh, number one, language. We have uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Number two, authorship. We have diverse authors. There's no one singular human author. We have uh, number three, qualification. And it ranges from very well-educated, okay? So like Paul or Moses, to people who are like fishermen and shepherds. Number four, place. Three continents written, scattered all different parts of, uh, of that region. Number five, the forms. Some are songs, some are stories, some is law, some are prophecies. So there are different forms that it takes. Uh, number six, subject matter. The books of the Bible cover a wide range, uh, sex, religion, politics, all the things that we should not be discussing in polite company. And uh, more than that, there are so many things that it covers that uh, it, has, it covers the whole life of, of, uh, of, of the humanity, actually. So the subject matter is very, very wide and diverse in the 66 books. And lastly, number seven, time. Uh, it covers uh, 1,600 years um, and... That's, that's a lot, <laughs> if you really think about it. I mean, what other human literature actually has different authors writing in that span of 1,600 years? So we have concluded that uh, indeed the, the differences or the diversities in the Bible is, is wide-ranging, it's vast. Now, the problem is not that, that, that the Bible is diverse. We know them. Christians do not just accept these diversities, we celebrate them. The problem is that others, for others, the vast diversities justify the supposed contradictions. To them, they say, well, of course they contradict. The Bible contradicts itself. It is only natural since the authors were separated by hundreds, thousands of years across different lands, backgrounds, cultures, and, and more. Obviously, obviously, this will lead to contradictions. To expect anything less is to delude ourselves. Um, supposedly. So that is what some people think. Now, in this book, Kaiser shows us how modern scholarships makes much of the diversities and oftentimes, sadly, ignores the unity. Now, a country that plays up people's differences instead of a common cause will fracture. And similarly, a religion that stresses on diversity and ignores the unity will collapse. The question here is, is there a genuine point of unity or is it naivety on our part? Does the Bible present a chorus or a cacophony? Kaiser wants to tell you how the differences can be reconciled. Kaiser wants us to recover the unity of the Bible. Instead of reading to you the titles for chapters 3 to 16, I will pose questions that is then answered in those chapters. These are just sample questions, so they are not uh, comprehensive. They are not all the questions that is uh, answered in these chapters, but they are given to you to give to, as a sneak peek 
on what you can expect answered when you read these chapters. So let's look at one question, the first question. Who killed Goliath? David or Elhanan? In 1 Samuel 17, David killed Goliath. But in 2 Samuel 21, it says Elhanan, the son of Jerah Orgim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now in chapter 3, uh, the harmonization of the diversity, Kaiser lists seven sources of biblical discrepancy. And he points, uh, he uses the Goliath question in one of them. To answer the question of who is Goliath's killer, he points out 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5. Elhanan, son of Jael, killed Lahmi, the brother of Goliath the Gidite. Then, only, as only an Old Testament scholar can, Kaiser explains how a copyist of early manuscripts got it wrong. Now let's look at another question. Does anything unite the sprawling Old Testament books? Is there a structure behind it? In chapter 4, The Unity of the Hebrew Bible, Kaiser introduces us to David Noel Friedman, who wrote a book, another book, The Unity of the Hebrew Bible, which inspired the title for today's book. Kaiser commends Friedman, saying, Friedman has given us a most creative and unusual approach to the question of the unity of the Old Testament. He has made a strong case of the message and plan of the Old Testament. End quote. Friedman suggests that the Ten Commandments outlines nine of the Old Testament books. Do you remember the, Old Ten, the Ten Commandments? Don't worry, we will walk them through. The first two commandments is, uh, you shall have no other gods and you shall not make any idols. Both were broken in Exodus 32. Aaron makes the golden calf and says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, was broken in Leviticus 24. A man blasphemes and is then stoned. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath, was broken in Numbers. Numbers 15, a man gathers sticks on the Sabbath and is then stoned. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, was broken in, what's the next book after Numbers? De Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, a son rebels and is stoned. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, was broken in Judges 19-21, to where we see a Levite's concubine being brutally murdered and then throwing the whole nation into battle against the tribe of Benjamin. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, was broken in what is the most famous adultery in the Bible. Yes, it occurred in 2 Samuel 11-12, to King David and Bathsheba. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal, was broken in Joshua 7. Achan takes what God said no one should take and is stoned. The last two commandments, you shall not lie and you shall not covet, were both violated by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who conspired to get Nabal killed through lies because Ahab coveted Nabal's vineyard. I just gave a summary of Kaiser's summary of Friedman's suggestion that the Ten Commandments provides a structural unity to these nine books. The rest of this chapter shows how the rest of the Old Testament books, the prophecies and wisdom literature, come together as a coherent piece. Now, if the Old Testament is coherent, what about the New? I mean, isn't it clear that James and Paul contradict each other in the New Testament? 
In chapter 5, The Unity of the New Testament, Kaiser tackles several alleged differences within the New Testament and shows that the differences between James versus Paul or Jesus versus Paul or Paul versus Paul are overstated. Yes, you heard me right. Paul versus Paul. Some scholars apparently argue that the Paul in Acts is different from the Paul in the epistles and suggests a conspiracy, a cover-up by Luke. I have never even heard of this conspiracy, but if this conspiracy ever crosses from academia into the pews, into the pulpit, Kaiser has helped us prepare and refute this and other alleged contradictions. Now, at this point in the book, we have had some practice handling diversities within the Old Testament and within the New Testament. Now, how about we put them together and ask the question, is there a unifying theme for the whole Bible? Can, can we think of one unifying theme for the whole Bible? Well, how about the Messiah? Yeah? In chapter 6, the unity of the Bible in its messianic promises, Kaiser traces the development of the prophecy fulfillment approach and then introduces a better approach, which is the promised plan of God. This uh, promised plan of God will be further elaborated in chapter 11. And also, we should note, Kaiser wrote a whole book on this topic. Also in this chapter, Kaiser introduces E.D. Hirsch's famous distinction between meaning and significance. I don't know about famous. I've never heard of Hirsch or his famous distinction or presumably the famous problem that this famous distinction solves. Reading this book is a humbling experience for me. There are so many things I don't know. But this meaning and significance distinction is a good one and I'll share more about it at the end of this review. Now, I need to warn readers, in case you haven't picked up on it, that this is an academic book. And if this is your first time reading an academic book, it can be daunting. Let me read an example section. I quote, J.G. Herder, born 1744 and died 1803, and J.G. Eichhorn, born 1752 and died 1827, concluded that the whole idea that the Old Testament contained a prediction of a coming saviour was merely a dogmatic imposition laid over scripture. Prophecy had only a single meaning, which could not be manoeuvred into depicting a coming messiah. Both men felt that the end of the 18th century had erased the concept of messiah from the Old Testament altogether. E.W. von Hegstenberg, however, mounted a massive attempt to stem the negative tide against a messianic interpretation of the Old Testament in a three-volume set that appeared from 1829 to 1835. A second edition, now in four volumes, appeared between 1854 and 1858, entitled Christology of the Old Testament and a Commentary on the Messianic Predictions. End quote. Huh. So... After here, Kaiser is tracing a historical battle between two ways of interpreting the messianic passages. And here, readers face their own battles to make sense of the strange names of times past on matters obscure. If I may offer this suggestion to the general Christian reader. Okay, take some comfort here. <laughs> it's like going to a party where you don't know anybody else except for your friend who brought you there. 
and your friend is Walter C. Kaiser Jr. He pulls you along and introduces you to his friends. This is so-and-so, this is his job. Uh, Who does he get along with? Who doesn't he get along with? So some of us would find the people at the party interesting. But some of us are just looking for the buffet table. So for those uh, of that mind, uh, you would politely move past the people to the buffet table and stack your plates with delicious goodies. Now, what is rude in a party is perfectly acceptable when reading a book. So my advice to you is just skim, skip, and scroll through. One day, you might want to get to know E.W. von Hengstenberg and his works. But until that day comes, don't feel that you have to fully engage with von Hengstenberg when there is a beautiful buffet spread just behind him. Thus, while there are parts of the book that can be difficult reading, I want to stress that aside from the occasional strange names, dates, places, theological terms, discussions on the Greek and the Hebrew word and grammar, this is a readable book, as seen in the questions the, qu- the chapters answer. Right? So think about the questions we have posed so far. I mean, these are not academic. They are very real questions that you and I both ask after we read the Bible. Now consider some more. Have you ever asked, why is God in the Old Testament different from the New Testament? Or, why are the heroes in the Old Testament so bad? Abraham lied, David committed adultery, Hosea married a prostitute. These guys do not reach the ethical standards of the New Testament. In chapter 7 and 8, Kaiser explains the Bible's unity on God and God's people. So, by the way, uh, Chris Wright's book, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, also does uh, part of this work, uh, showing that the fruit of the Spirit is rooted in the character of God as revealed in the Old Testament and also Jesus in the New Testament. And Chris Wright is also an Old Testament scholar and has been cited positively in Kaiser's book. Uh, Chris Wright, as I mentioned earlier, is free in September. And for more information, you can uh, listen or read the, the episode before this one. Now, moving, uh, now, coming back to Kaiser's book, let's, uh, let's move faster. We just finished chapter 8, and there are altogether 16 chapters. The remaining chapters uh, cover questions including, but not limited to, has the church replaced Israel? Is the law of God now obsolete? How are the Old Testament saints saved? Is mission, meaning reaching out to the nations, something found in the Old Testament? Is there a biblical way to interpret and to teach and preach? So these are all questions that we can ask, and these are not uh, academic, uh, how many angels can, can stand on a, on, a, on a pin. These are very real, and these questions are answered in, uh, in chapters which address unity in relation to the people of God, kingdom of God, the promised plan of God, the law of God, the doctrine of salvation, the mission, hermeneutics, and expository preaching and teaching. Everything I just said just now is a chapter by itself, but uh, Kaiser relates it to the unity of Scripture. As I digest this book, which is only, I want to emphasize, it's only 256 pages long, but it's so packed with ideas, puzzles, solutions, history, and theology. So let me offer a unifying reflection. Many of the questions posed in this book and in this review are familiar to me as I grew up in the faith. I didn't ask about the Greek or the Hebrew in different manuscripts, but I did ask about why God seems different in the old than the new, among many other questions. 
I didn't know that these questions could be tackled with the, with the doctrine. Can I call it a doctrine? Of the unity of Scripture. Now, that's an uncommon phrase. We are more familiar with the, with the phrase inerrancy of Scripture. And Christians will die on that hill of inerrancy of Scripture. Although inerrancy and unity are two sides of the same coin, I feel after reading this book, I think, that uh, inerrancy doesn't offer an obvious way to reveal or settle alleged contradictions. So, for example, consider these two statements. Number one, God's wrath is clear in the Old Testament. Number two, God's mercy is clear in the New Testament. Now, is there an error to be corrected in these two statements? No. But the unspoken uh, contradiction or supposed uh, contradiction is, is God's character seems to be different. But if we look and, and, and uh, receive these statements from the, from the point of view of inerrancy of Scripture, we would see there would be no errors. We would not see the problem and therefore we would not suggest a way forward. On the other hand, uh, we want to emphasize that inerrancy affirms that the Bible has no contradictions. Inerrancy says that all 66 books is in harmony with each other, a chorus, not a cacophony, a unity amidst diversity. So inerrancy uh, leads to uh, unity. Now, if we look back at the two statements, God's wrath is clear in the Old Testament, uh, God's mercy is clear in the NT, and perceive them through the lens of unity of Scripture, it brings out the problem. We then ask, why are they not the same? And it also points to a solution. We need to show that God's wrath is also clear in the New Testament, which it is, and God's mercy is also clear in the Old Testament, which it is. Which means if we look at the Bible through the lens of unity, it gives us another way of wrestling with the text and even answer categories, categories of questions that at first seems unrelated, but are actually rooted in the unity-diversity question. And that's how one, one big idea that I got from uh, reading Kaiser's book here. Now, another thing that uh, Kaiser gave me to think about is the distinction between meaning and significance. Okay, there are many, I'll just point out one. I never knew there was a distinction or even that it could make a difference in how I interpret the Bible. This is how I illustrate it, okay, as I think about this uh, uh, distinction. Let's say you are at church and your pastor comes to you and shouts, Get out! What is the meaning of get out? These two words. Now, the more we know of the context, the more we understand the meaning and significance of what the pastor said. Maybe there is a fire and the pastor is asking you to get out of the church to save your life. Or maybe the pastor just realized that you have been stealing money from the church and wants you to get out of the treasurer position. Or maybe you came to the pastor because you are experiencing demonic possession and the pastor is saying, get out, not to you, but to the evil spirit within you. As you can see, the more we know, the more we understand what the pastor meant by those, words, by those two words, get out. And the significance can change or grow. Because based on the different meanings, we can deduce that the pastor can lead in an emergency or is financially responsible or can do exorcism. And uh, depending on which meaning was intended, this would affect how the church behaves, okay? how the church would be like, how other people interact with the pastor. And hence, the significance of one get-out event can color the future. Hmm? 
What Kaiser argues is that there is only ever one meaning. There cannot be two or more meanings. You may have more than one significance which can change, but there can only ever be one meaning to the text. The pastor shouting, get out, cannot mean get out because there is a fire and get out because you stole and get out, you demon, I banish you to hell. He cannot mean the same three things at the same time. Therefore, here is Kaiser's point. In the light of the New Testament revelation, he argues that the meaning in the Old Testament did not change nor multiply. It still retains the same meaning in that context, but its significance may be more, okay, may have changed or may be more in light of the New Testament. There is, no, there is no double meaning in the Old Testament. And he works this out in greater detail, especially in the last two chapters of the book on hermeneutics and on the preaching and teaching chapters. Forgive me of my indulgence, but let me quote Kaiser at length. Kaiser quotes Chris Wright, We may legitimately see in the event or in the record of it additional levels of significance in light of the end of the story, i.e. in the light of Christ. He went on to say, looking back on the event of the Exodus, in the light of the fullness of God's redemptive achievement in Jesus Christ, we can see that even the original Exodus was not merely concerned with the political, economic, and social aspects of Israel's predicament. There was also a level of spiritual oppression in Israel's subjection to the gods of Egypt. Okay? Kaiser comments, Notice that Wright carefully used the words additional levels of significance that could come from the end of the story. This is a whole world apart from what Sidney Gray Danis argued after he surveyed the fact that some scholars prefer to use census plenior or the analogia fidei, rule of faith. Okay, so this is saying that how people would interpret, um, would take the New Testament and, and, and suggest a, another meaning in the Old Testament. So that's Kaiser's um, uh, protest over here. Kaiser quotes Gray Danis. Let's see whether you can catch what's the problem. Gradenus uh, says, I continue to favor the name that refers to the broadest possible context and gives due recognition to God's act in history. Redemptive historical interpretation. Whatever name we use, the important point is that a passage understood in the context of the whole Bible and redemptive history may reveal more meaning than its author intended originally. For example, it is not likely that the author of Numbers 21 realized that in relating the story of the bronze serpent, he was sketching a type of Christ. The type in this passage is discovered only from the New Testament perspective when Jesus makes use in John 3.14 of this event to proclaim his own saving work. Kaiser comments, Everything in this quote was going well until Gradanus used the words may reveal more meaning than its human author intended originally. End quote. So this is the argument of whether the Old Testament authors have one or more meanings okay, when they wrote. I have not decided where I stand on this yet. I'm still thinking about it. I mean, how do we handle Isaiah's prophecy on the virgin birth? I initially thought that this should be interpreted as a double meaning. One meaning applicable to Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz, a second meaning brought out by Matthew into Isaiah's prophecy. Sadly, Kaiser didn't have this passage as an example in this book. I would love to know how he interprets it. And maybe, most likely, he actually deals with it in his other books. Now, perhaps some of you think that the distinction is artificial or trivial, but I agree with Kaiser on the dangers of one approach over the other. 
a search for deeper or another meaning in the Old Testament, even with the New Testament to guide us, may result in imposing a foreign meaning and teaching it to be true. If we are not careful, we would be teaching what is not true and leading people away from what is obviously true. To conclude, there is plenty in this book to meditate on and for that reason I recommend more people give this book a try, especially those I think can be stretched a bit in your reading. I'm not asking you to stop reading your devotionals or Christian living books and be a snob. Far from it. I'm saying we can all benefit from the fine scholarship that Walter C. Kaiser Jr. has devoted a lifetime to in order to enrich and deepen the church and in this book to recover the unity of the Bible. This is a reading and reader's review of Recovering the Unity of the Bible, One Continuous Story, Plan and Purpose by Walter C. Kaiser Jr. I'm sure we are all united in our desire to mature in the faith. I humbly suggest one way is to read books that stretch the mind. It's not the only way. In my circles, we are very careful to not overstress the pride of the intellect. Yet I fear we are not stressing enough that we are to love the Lord our God with our mind. If you know a brother or sister in Christ who would benefit from today's review, please share it. And if you know anybody who's going to seminary, perhaps you need to share this uh, more urgently. <laughs> My name is Terence, and I am your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Have a blessed day. <music>